Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Last year, Cook County Stroger Hospital treated more than 1,100 patients with gunshot wounds. 1,100. Officials there will tell you that the number of patients cared for with gunshot and stab wounds is so high at Stroger that officials say teams of U.S. Navy corpsmen rotate through the trauma unit as part of their training for deployment. Gun violence may not be at plague levels, but it is plaguing our communities and our health care system. And this week, we're going to talk with health care professionals about how we all might survive this. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. discussing gun violence this weekend because we've already passed the Memorial Day weekend and it was a violent one and we are heading into the summer months when the number of gunshot victims traditionally rises. For victims, our hospitals are at best where they end up and hopefully find help. Now my guests this weekend are on those front lines. Dr. Farhan Bukhari is the chair of the Trauma and Burn Department at Cook County's Health and Hospital System. Stroger Hospital was the nation's first and is still one of the busiest level one trauma centers in the country. Dr. Bokhari has been doing trauma surgery for nearly 30 years. He specializes in abdominal wounds and patients who need massive transfusions. Andy Wheeler is a social worker, to put it mildly. He is the patient and family supportive services coordinator at Stroger's Trauma Center. He's one of the people helping patients and their families get through the trauma. Not all of the healing is physical. He's been at Stroger Hospital since 2012. Before that, he worked in the child and adolescent psychiatry departments at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital and Shepherd Pratt Hospital in Baltimore, and he volunteered for a youth development program in Nepal. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us, Greg. Thank you. Um, Dr. Bukhari, we're fond of saying that we should treat gun violence as a public health crisis, but, I mean, in practical terms, for the people who are coming in the doors of the hospital— uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, Craig, it's almost a cliche now that this um, um, problem that we are having is um, uh, a disease process that needs to be nipped in the bud. Um, there's, a, there's a huge number of people working on um, this issue, trying to define it so that we can find um, chinks in the armor, so to speak, um, so that we can solve the issue. Uh, what we have is a, a bunch of um, vectors that are contributing um, to this uh, issue. There is the, the accessibility to guns. There is the people that actually have access to those guns. And there's the interpersonal aspect that l- leads to this interpersonal violence. So all these um, issues would ne- need to be addressed for there to be an effective solution. 
to this uh, issue. And uh, Andy Wheeler, you see this from the uh, perspective of the, the victims and, and the aftermath. Uh, so how does the public health vision uh, affect or, or guide what you are doing? Well, I think um, to echo what Dr. Bakari was saying is it's all of our responsibility to treat our patients and their families as holistically as possible and to work um, with primary and secondary prevention models. So primary prevention is things like working on um, access to guns. And then the way that we work in the hospital is that we know that victims of gun violence are actually at very high risk of being victims or perpetrators of gun violence in the future. And so working with those patients and their families is an opportunity to uh, interrupt the cycle of violence. Um, and we do that uh, with my team with helping treat the emotional, psychological, and spiritual impact that um, trauma, that gun violence has on, on somebody. We're going to get deeper into that uh, in this half hour. Dr. Bakari, you've been treating victims of violence for uh, nearly three decades. What's changed, whether it's in the numbers or the severity of the violence that our hospitals are seeing? I think the numbers have gone up slightly, though you can't uh, be 100% on that. They go up and down um, depending on the decade that you're talking about. The intensity of violence has increased. Um, The injury intensity on the patients is much worse. I think that's because there are more efficient weapons available now than there were 20, 25, 30 years ago. Um, also, there's um, there's almost a sense that um, you've got really young people getting involved in this. Um, and the ages are, are are much younger than I remember uh, a couple of decades ago. Well, and uh, Andy Wheeler, uh, before we even discuss the toll that all of this takes on the medical personnel who have to see this and, and treat this, um, Let's talk about the effects that you see on the people uh, who live with such violence as part of what would otherwise be called normal life. I mean, what, what does that do to people? Um, many of our patients present with uh, acute stress and PTSD symptoms. Uh, we did a study a few years ago, and we found that about 42% of our patients and, fa- and their family members screen positive for PTSD. Um, PTSD symptoms uh, people are somewhat familiar with, things like having nightmares, trouble sleeping, hypervigilance, um, feeling numb to your emotions. Um, but that doesn't really quite capture what a lot of our patients and families are going through. Uh, they really um, have been experiencing a lot of trauma, we know, throughout their lives. So many of our patients uh, witnessed uh, their loved ones or people they know uh, getting shot at a very young age. Um, sometimes for some of our patients, them being injured isn't even what they would describe as the worst trauma that they've experienced. Um, there is um, a chronic and persistent fear for one's safety, their physical safety, their emotional safety. Um, and so you can just imagine what it, what kind of a toll it takes on somebody um, when they're afraid to walk home from school, when they're afraid to leave their house, to have to be on edge um, 24-7. It can be very terrifying for our patients. It can also play a role in their physical healing um, as well. Does it also go in in some ways, in some cases, in the other direction where people become almost cold to it and matter-of-fact about their chances of living through the next week? 
Absolutely. Um, I think that it is a normal adaptive response that if you're seeing something um, all the time that you expect that it could happen to you or somebody you know, so you become prepared for that. Um, even some of our patients that are young, young teenagers, like 14, 15 years old, they kind of wake up and are just thankful to be alive, which is, we. I think we all should be thankful we're alive, but I think that for a child to wake up not necessarily expecting to be alive is, um, you know, something that is hard for anybody to hear and something that we shouldn't, um, that we shouldn't expect among our citizens. Um, doctor, I want to touch or expand on something that Andy said earlier, and that is, uh, the, the statistics that, you know, the system has on the fact that people see violence repeatedly, that, that many victims that you see, this it may not be the first time that they have suffered trauma, and they keep, what what is that, from a treatment aspect, what does that do, where you're dealing with victims who've been victims before? So I think that um, from a clinical management and surgical aspect, it makes it more difficult because you have um, patients whose um, bodies have been injured many times before or a couple of times before. And so the organs are not um, as strong as they might have been in the past. They are not easy to operate on. You cannot get to the organs as fast that might be bleeding at that time because there's a lot of scar tissue and uh, they are not in the place that they should be exactly. And, and that can make the operations much more difficult. Um, uh, salvaging or saving those organs can be problematic because you've got blood supply to those organs that was injured the first time around, so the tubes are not good to begin with, and they've been injured again. So uh, the prognosis gets worse and worse for these patients as they get re-injured mm. because they go back to the same environment, uh, and the uh, the game is on again. Um, you know, It's not that anything's changed after we've patched them up. And that's why I want to bring you back in, uh, Andy Wheeler, the, that it is, uh, you know, in some cases a cycle. And, you know, what do you say to people whom you have seen before? And, and, and can, I, can I assume that you have <clears throat> seen people more than once? Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, what can you say to those people that can make any difference in what goes, what goes on afterwards? Um, well, I think to some extent we all have to accept our limits and what we can what we can do and what we can change. Um, it can be very hard to talk to a patient about how to stay safe in their community. I think that we can discuss ways for patients, maybe who the, who they're hanging out with, uh, if they know that some friends of theirs might be uh, put, be putting them at risk, places they can go that can be safe. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's necessarily, it's not my or a patient's responsibility for to create that safe environment in their community. It's, it takes many more levels of systems to create safety within our communities and our, in our city. Doctor? You know, so I still remember um, having a conversation with the mom, and I have these conversations with the moms and dads of people that have been injured. And I tend to stress to them that it's really not the child, uh, it's, it's the environment around the child. And the best way, in my mind, 
to change it and it's difficult to do it is that you sort of move you know you move the location that you're at you you change your friends you you start your life anew which is very tough to do because where you live is where all the good people are that are your friends but there are also apparently people there that are not good and that's why you've gotten caught in the crossfire or they don't happen to like you so you have to change the pattern of your behavior as well as your environment this is the only solution i can think of i've i've i remember when i was young telling a mom you know the only way you can fix this is just move move out of chicago go far away uh, but you know as i look back at that advice i think to myself you know what ends up happening is um uh, you'd move to a small rural town for instance which is what i advised at that time um but uh, that doesn't mean that you sever those connections because while there's badness in your environment there's also a lot of goodness and you want that goodness and, and you want those good people to be interacting with you but that exact environment comes with the people that injured you so uh, naive advice at the time but i i still believe that at some level you have to change uh, the way you live and who you interact with and it's very tough it's it's not just the guns per se or the violence quote and quote in the community per se it is where you live and who you are and who you talk to who, i mean you are basically exactly the same as the people that you hang out with and i can echo some of what you're saying there because i i happen to have a uh, uh, a son who is a uh, police officer in uh, cedar rapids iowa which is it's a city and it's the second largest city in iowa but it's also a fairly rural area and they have a gang problem there and sometimes the young people he runs across are from Chicago whose their parents moved from Chicago to Iowa to get away from the gangs but if your son was already involved in a gang he or she might if your son was if it would be a he i guess but uh might bring the gang with them. I mean not in not exactly, but still has the same you know behaviors and so that they get into the same kinds of things. So you don't necessarily move away. Well, and it's in in today's world, the world is very flat. You can go 2000 miles just in a couple of hours. You know, you are not just going to extract yourself just because you moved geography. It is about I think maybe another advice would be that you should interface with people other than um, just your the people that are in your environment. You should not say, "Well, this individual doesn't look like me or does look like me." You should aspire to something higher and say to yourself, "Even if he doesn't look like me, that's who I'm going to be." And this is to an aspiring gang person. You don't have to be like the person that looks like you and is in your community and happens to be doing things that nobody else likes. why not do something totally different be yourself be your own person you know um you should emulate people that are successful in the world doesn't matter what they look like even if they totally don't look like you just copy those people why do you have to copy just the people in your environment well and we're going to talk about uh, how we can change that environment in just a second uh you are listening to WBBM news radio's at issue I'm political editor Craig Delamore and we're talking about gun violence from the health system's perspective my guests are Dr. Farhan Bakari, he's the chair of the Trauma and Burn Department at Cook County's Health and Hospital System, and Andy Wheeler, the Patient and Family Supportive Services Coordinator at Stroger Hospital's Trauma Center. Uh and and 
I want to continue this thought of, I mean, stitching, stitching up the wounds isn't where it all ends. You have to deal with patients who, uh, in some ways, and I, maybe this is for both of you, these are people who, in many cases, don't have the resources or the knowledge for what would be traditional follow-up care. Um, that's, you know, the, med- the medicines, uh, even cleaning bandages, physical treatment. Um, not all of the patients are, are in a position to, to keep going with even the normal me- clinical healing. Well, a lot of the, uh, depends on the amount of injury they have. Obviously, if it's a complex injury, you would require a lot more complex treatment. But I would say that um, we are able to provide the things that most people need to heal them. Uh, you know, it, it, um, it can be a long process. The wounds can be very extensive, but it's not rocket science. You know, people are intelligent. You know, um, I, I don't want to be paternalistic towards um, anybody. And I'm not just saying that to be uh, politically correct. I'm not that kind of a person. <laughs> um, uh, you know, people are smarter than you think, you know, uh, and they can take care of their own lives. Um, and just given a little bit of knowledge, they can look it up. Everything's available on the internet. You know, how do you change a dressing? Um, you can ask us or you can just look it up and, and go your own way. But my advice to people is is um, is to and even to the people that might be involved in this sort of life it's like why do you have to do that why don't you do something else and 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 be bigger than what you are right now um, Andy Wheeler you, you're you're in the position of, of telling people you know all right where do you go from here how does the hospital or how can a hospital help with the idea of going back into the same world uh, I mean, you 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 actually do have programs that uh, that do work with that, do you not? Sure. Yeah. And and kind of what I meant before is, you know, uh, our patients' environments don't always necessarily change, and they don't always understand the systems that they interact with. Don't always understand the complex trauma that they've been going through, and so there aren't always job opportunities for our patients and their families. And we, I can't make a job for somebody, but I can help. A patient be uh, alert and aware and able to cope with what they've gone through, so that they can be um, uh, they can be prepared for a job or going back to school and things like that. Uh, so we are lucky to have community partners that we work with. Uh, we've worked very closely with the organization uh, Cure Violence for many years. Um, we also have developed our own uh, hospital violence intervention program called Healing Hurt People Chicago which is a replication of a program uh, from Philadelphia uh, that we've had for several years now. Can you explain what that does? Sure. So uh, at the moment, we uh, have funding to uh, serve patients who are about 18 years old and younger. Uh, We're about to expand uh, to serve patients uh, up to about the age of 30. Uh, So a patient who uh, comes in with a violent injury, a gunshot wound, uh, also a stab wound or an assault, has the opportunity to connect with uh, another social worker that we call a trauma trauma intervention specialist, uh, and you begin to build rapport and build a relationship and find out what kind of what, what's going on with, in somebody's life, um, what are their needs, what are they trying to work on, how can we use a really tragic uh, event as maybe an opportunity uh, for growth. Um, so, say somebody has been out of school for a period of time, uh, we work with them to find a school that is safe for them to go to, uh, help them re-enroll in school, and then communicate with the school that uh, the student is uh, has experienced trauma that could affect um, their attention or things like that, their ability to 
uh, focus um, and so that the school is aware of what trauma is, how it, how it affects how it affects folks and um, how we can support somebody's healing in that way. Uh, and are these cases followed up to the extent that you can tell that this path is working? Yeah, so uh, we've had uh, really good results with our program, a lot, and there's lots of programs like this around the country. Um, we have sort of basic markers that you, you want to reduce re-injury, the likelihood someone is injured again, retaliation, and involvement in the criminal justice system. But you also want to improve overall well-being, uh, so decreased rates of or decreased uh, depression symptoms, decreased rates of PTSD, uh, and then increases in things like school enrollment and uh, employment. And so far, we've seen very good results. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but very few of our patients um, have been re-injured. Um, sorry, so um, I have it right here. Uh, so it's about 84% have decreases in PTSD symptoms, 89% um, have increased self-efficacy, um, and only 8% of our youth have been re-injured, um, which is much lower than what would be expected. Well, I want to talk about one of the other uh, the vectors, to use the word that uh, the doctor that you used right at the top of the uh, the program. Uh, is there something that the other people on the front lines, the police, could do differently that could also help improve outcomes? I mean, are there every? I suspect that every fact factor, every vector plays plays a role in this. Uh, in in the prevention of violence, I mean, is it? We hear a lot about high technology and predictive algorithms and and the like, but what's the role the police could play in in helping with this? I think um, uh, the police should be seen by all communities as um, somebody they work in partnership with, and this is another one of those cliches. I've heard it so many times, uh, but you know uh, the real implementation of that is the police is needed, I think, and they've done a great job, uh, you know, over this uh, last week. And we've had injuries, but uh, as you know, they were less than last year's. And, and you, it was obvious I was taking a walk along Lakeshore Drive and not all the neighborhoods in Chicago, but just there, there was a lot of police presence throughout the city, wherever you went. And that might have contributed to decreasing the injury rate. Um, I think Police's role is to create a stable environment, not to persecute anybody, and not that they do, but um, but to make sure that uh, uh, people are not afraid of individuals that um, are not interested in um, in following the law. And there's a very small number of those people. The vast majority of people want to do the right thing. There's a small number that actually need a police presence to be urged to do the right thing. And I think that that's the role I see the police as having to actually keep in line the small minority of individuals in all neighborhoods that would um, not do the right thing on their own necessarily or might um, uh, stray from the appropriate uh, path. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, and, and, and both of you can talk about this if, if you want, uh, there's always uh, and has been for a long time an argument for more gun laws. And of course, Second Amendment advocates would say, hey, we have enough laws on the books already what and and it's going to be that fight no no matter when and how it's raged it uh, or waged um what are the things that you see that need to be done and what things could be done 
in this environment? So I think um, um, you have to um, look at the situation and, and figure out uh, why there are two inconsistent statements. Well, we got plenty of laws and, and, and we still have the issue. Well, it's not that crude. You have to look just a tad deeper than the surface of that statement um, and say to yourself, well, why is that in Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because uh, the laws uh, might be very specifically very local. Um, and, and you've got, uh, like in Illinois, uh, the states around Illinois might have very lax laws. And I mean, this is not a police state where you control and um, you know, search everybody across the borders. So you are able to uh, bring in weapons from the outside. And we don't monitor the movement of every individual, um, any one of our, every one of our citizens on the streets. So you'll continue to have that violence. And that doesn't mean that um, uh, the laws are, uh, are not what we need. I mean, that just means you've got the wrong laws and they're not being applied appropriately. Are, are there specific things that, uh, that you would want to see? And Andy, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what Dr. Bakari is alluding to is that we need federal gun legislation. Um, so people hear all the time, oh, Chicago has strict gun laws, but there's still high rates of gun violence. And y- yeah, but that's actually making our argument for us that we need federal gun laws because people, Indiana is closer to some places in Chicago than the loop. And you can travel to other states. And, you know, there have been studies done that guns come from all 50 states into Chicago to be used. And we need federal gun legislation so that there is consistency, so that guns can move from one place to another very easily. People can travel very easily. But now, if we're going to have the same kind of debate that we always have uh, because of the, frankly, the lobbying on both sides... And it's going to be a stalemate as it has been in Congress. Is is it is is that does that mean it's hopeless? Do, I mean, do 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 we shrug and say, oh well, it's never going to happen? I mean, we don't pass federal law. Well, um, it's it's always difficult when you leave it up to the court legislators. I mean, you know, I feel that you know you have to do something about it yourself in your own neighborhoods. And when the tide is already turned, that's when the law comes around. And these. Rem- these uh, discussions remind me very much of the discussions about smoking. <laughs> this was exactly all well, my right to smoke, you know, uh, your right to smoke on your own, but not my face, you know. And and there was a there was a lobby there, and and you know both sides had um, interesting arguments, and um, you know the right to smoke, the right to you know uh, not have smoke in my environment, um, and eventually it it went the right way. And I don't know if it necessarily went the right way because of legislation. It was. A recognition on part of the citizens what they wanted, you know, and and I don't think it's too far away where we are going to have reasonable people, um, and I think the most most of the country is going to agree on this that this is not an appropriate thing to arm, you know, eighteen or twenty or even nineteen year olds. Um, you know, we have been trying to uh, fiddle with that age, that one year, two year, and that's not the question here. The question here is: Should you really have? high-powered automatic weapons uh, in the hands of regular, ordinary citizens because, because um, you are afraid of a tyrannical government. And, and you know, you, you're always uh, wondering about that. And, you're, and I'm looking at the, the amount of uh, um, weaponry the government has, and I'm just sort of saying to myself, really, an armed neighborhood can actually ward off an attack by the, uh, a United States tyrannical government? It's not possible. It's impossible that you can fight off the, the balance of power is so far off that this argument is really 
uh, facetious. Um, and I'm not quite sure what exactly we are doing by arming citizens with these small weapons when you've got you know, 10,000 nukes <laughs> that are controlled by, uh, by Washington, really. Yeah, but, and, if we, and we only have about a minute left. Uh, if we use the analogy of the uh, cigarette smoking, those battles, it seems to me, were fought on a state-by-state state, and in some cases city-by-city city battle. And yes, the public got involved, but is that maybe the way we're going to have to go? Uh, Andy? Um, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure how to answer that. Um, I mean, do you see pe- more people aware of the, you know, the, their ability to try and do something in their own neighborhoods, in their own city? Yeah, I mean, I think within our cities, people are doing, doing a lot. Um, but again, I think that it takes, it, it, we have to care for one another. I don't really know how to convince those people in positions of power to care about everybody equally. I think that we get in an uproar as we should after mass shootings and things like that. But every single day we have we have people in Chicago who are shot, who survive. Some people don't survive. And I think that we all need to care about everybody, regardless of their, their race, age, anything like that. That will be the final word. And thank you very much. That was Andy Wheeler. Uh, he is uh, with Cook County's uh, Stroger Hospital, as is Dr. Farhan Bokhari, and we thank both of you for being with us. Uh, to our listeners, uh, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's wbbmnewsradio.com. You'll also find our podcast on radio.com. Uh, I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.